China's rising star in space. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Planetary Society executive director and co-founder Lou Friedman has just returned from the world's most populous and possibly most ambitious nation. He'll provide a report on China's plans to explore the moon and beyond, utilizing both robots and human emissaries. Bruce Betts will make his regular visit, armed with night sky tips for owners of telescopes large and small, and even for those of us who just like to look up and wonder with our eyes alone. And here's something for your ears alone, our quick review of space headlines. There she blows. Have you seen the fountains of Enceladus? The Cassini spacecraft took advantage of an alignment with Saturn's icy moon and the sun to catch the ghostly plumes geysering out of the south polar region. Take a look for yourself at planetary.org. The tidings from Hayabusa are not nearly so effervescent. The Japanese probe successfully collected a few grams of asteroid Itakawa just last week. Controllers now report serious problems, including a leaky attitude control jet. The Japanese space agency lost touch with the little spacecraft for an entire day, but then managed to re-establish contact. It's unclear whether Hayabusa will be able to make the planned return trip to Earth. Again, more details are at planetary.org. Finally, congrats to XCOR. The company's Easy Rocket got in the record books last weekend with a point-to-point flight from the Mojave, California spaceport, also home of Spaceship One, to a nearby desert town. It even carried a couple of bags of mail. Next come the rocket-powered barnstormers and wingwalkers, right? Emily's up next. She'll explain why we're not getting the view of Saturn's rings that has been featured in science fiction movies for several years. I'll be right back with Lou Friedman. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Can Cassini take pictures of Saturn's rings that show individual rock fragments? Saturn's rings are mostly made up of particles that are between a centimeter and a meter in diameter, but some chunks are much larger, up to 10 or 100 meters across. In theory, Cassini's cameras can image objects that are 100 meters across or smaller. The scale of Cassini's camera images is limited only by its ability to get close enough to a target to see the fine detail. To capture an image that resolves a ring particle 100 meters in diameter, Cassini would have to approach within roughly 5,000 kilometers of the densest A and B rings. So far in the mission, Cassini has approached much closer than this to Saturn's moons. However, Cassini will never travel so close to Saturn's main rings. In fact, the closest views it will ever get of the main rings have already been captured, from a distance of about 40,000 kilometers. Why won't they take Cassini closer to the rings? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. Barely a month has passed since the return of China's second manned spacecraft from orbit. This time it contained not one, but two Taikonauts. The Japanese space agency has set its sights on the moon and beyond in an ambitious program of solar system exploration. 
The Planetary Society has always had great interest in the space programs of nations around the world, so it's not surprising that the Society's Executive Director, Lou Friedman, got an invitation to meet with leaders of the Middle Kingdom's effort. I sat down with him a few days after his return. Lou, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Matt. Why were you in China? Well, China is a major spacefaring nation. Uh, they, of course, have uh, gotten a lot of attention uh, of the by sending humans to orbit. They've had now two successful flights with uh, what at least the American press are calling Taikonauts. I'm not actually sure, since I don't read Chinese myself, whether they are calling themselves Taikonauts or not. Really? Yeah. Oh, but, man. Uh, my colleagues that I actually met over there more often than not talked about astronauts, but uh, uh, I don't know if they were doing that for my benefit or whether that's what they really say when they're talking among themselves. But they, uh, but China is, of course, becoming uh, the third nation to have a human spaceflight program, and they have a launch capability for that. Uh, they have a launch capability for lots of missions, as it turns out, and they're becoming uh, increasingly active on the uh, both domestically and on the world scene for missions. What's got us excited uh, and, and interested, I think, is the fact that they have a, uh, a lunar program. And um, uh, if you're going to explore the moon and go out to uh, uh, the planets, uh, clearly that's something the Planetary Society is interested in. I met, I was there at the invitation of a group called the Committee on Deep Space Exploration of the Chinese Society of Astronautics. So deep space exploration, I first that was my first question to these people, where does deep space begin? And uh, that provoked a nice discussion around the dinner that we were having. Um, but it actually begins beyond the moon. Hmm. And that, that, in their mind, they were sort of focused on that idea, which I think is very interesting for a country that has not yet even gone to the moon. So they're clearly thinking of the long-range space program. Uh, their lunar program, which is called Chang'e, C-H-A-N-G apostrophe capital E. But if you do a Google search on it, you've got to be careful because they keep getting the word change, which comes up with two billion entries. And <laughs> so you have to get a little more particular than that. But it's, uh, and I don't have the good pronu Chinese pronunciation, of course, but the nearest I can get to it is Chang'e or Chang'e. Uh, it's a three-phase lunar program they've described. Uh, Orbiter beginning in 2007 followed by a lander, which would be, on if all goes well, within five years or so after that. The lander could and probably will have a small rover with it. Hmm. And then the third stage would be a lunar sample return. Hmm. Now, you probably know that no nation has uh, done an automated lunar sample return except uh, the Soviet Union uh, way back in the early 70s. So if they do that, that would be a uh, major accomplishment. You were over there talking to a lot of officials uh, in the uh, in the program. I mean, not just with this deep space group, but uh, got to talk to other uh, people within the Chinese space program. Yes, I spoke to a, a group at the Lunar Exploration Program Center, which is really uh, just basically a program office in the Chinese Space Agency. Hmm. So they're government uh, people. And then I spoke also to uh, their large industry that builds a lot of their satellites. It's called the... Uh, Chinese Academy of Space Technology, and uh, uh, I thought it was a professional group, uh, but it's really it, yeah. it really is a uh, it's very much like JPL and, and NASA huh. and, a, and a NASA Center or a, uh, or a combination of a NASA Center and industry, and they are government funded, but they are not a part of the government themselves, and they are uh, they have about eight thousand people. 
Wow. Uh, the department I met with was the part, people who are working on the lunar program and on the deep space uh, mission planning. It was very impressive. They were a lot of young people, uh, very involved, very active, uh, uh, not wallflowers at all, but, but very much involved in, in their program and they, and uh, interested in the Planetary Society and uh, our thoughts about uh, solar system uh, exploration. You ask them why they're doing an automated lunar sample return, and it's uh, my joke that I made to them was, uh, why on earth do you need to go to the moon to get moon rocks? It's much cheaper to go to Houston. It's much cheaper to go to Moscow. They have plenty of moon rocks there. Sure, we'll loan you some. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you could even buy a few if you can't own them. You could at least rent them. And it's clear that from some scientific point of view, I'm probably right. And from a, uh, but nations don't go to the moon for scientific reasons. They go for geopolitical reasons. And China wants to be a space power. And you, and the moon is a step outward from Earth that you take to do that. And so they, of course, want to conduct a scientific mission, which is appropriate and good. And, uh, and that would be the mission that they've, they've, uh, that they're going to do on the way outward. It's, of course, it's a boost to their, all of their technology in space. So these young people, the thousands of them that you saw at this academy, which I assume is a, it's a campus like JPL? Uh... Well, very much so. They, it's a brand new facility. It's, a, and they have a stunning exhibit hall. I mean, it's modern mm. with full of terrific video and, and computer graphics and, and light displays and uh, it really, and, and plus they have a, uh, uh, the real capsule of the Shengzhou uh, mm. uh, capsule that took the astronaut to orbit. Uh, they have the real reentry capsule uh, in the in the exhibit hall. Uh, they have a video playing shows a lunar base. It's clearly meant for uh, impressing visitors, and it impressed me. I've got to say, it's a whole new complex. It's right across the street. Literally from the astronaut training center. This which is, is in Beijing. It's or? in Beijing. Uh-huh. It's actually on the outskirts of Beijing, but it's in in Beijing. Um, the astronaut training center. I don't know if most listeners know, but the uh, the whole manned program or human spaceflight program is really under the military. It's not under the Chinese Space Agency. Hmm. And basically that's because that's where pilots come from, is the military. Uh, and so the astronaut training center belongs to the military too. But there it is right across the street uh, from the uh, Chinese Academy of Space Technology, which means that there's a, a certain degree of space attention which is being unified uh, even between the human and the robotic uh, program. Uh, so I was describing this uh, Chang'e program, the three-phase Program that would take you out probably to 2015 or 2016 if if all goes well and if there's setbacks of course that program could be stretched out if it starts going swimmingly well there might be multiple landers and multiple rovers in that time period. We'll hear more of Lou Friedman's report on the Chinese space program right after this. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars, 
We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio, where our guest is Dr. Lewis Friedman, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Planetary Society. Lou recently returned from China, where he got a first-hand look at that country's impressive and very ambitious space program. I asked Lou about reports that have reached the U.S. about Chinese plans for getting more people off our planet. The human spaceflight program is going to take longer, of course, to get humans beyond Earth orbit. And uh, uh, the kind of capabilities they're building up are very reminiscent of what us and the Soviet Union went through in the in the 60s and uh, mm. in building up our capability. First, you have a one-man capsule, then you have a two-man capsule, then you begin to do rendezvous, you'll do uh, extravehicular activity, you'll have to build up larger launch vehicles to launch more mass or do more assembly in orbit if you're going to take uh, astronauts beyond beyond Earth orbit. And I think the timetable for human spaceflight, which gets a lot of attention sometimes in the space interest community here in the U.S., uh, which kind of talks like maybe they're going to do it in just a few years. I think it's more out there toward the end of the next decade. That is, if it yeah. happened before 2020, I think they would be thrilled. Well, in fact, that's the date uh, just a few days ago. There was a story from, I guess, the equivalent to the, the deputy administrator of NASA who was saying that, yeah, we'd like to have uh, put people on the moon, Chinese astronauts or taikonauts, by 2020. And well, I, talk I, about a space station, too. I think... Uh, it's always been a position of the Planetary Society that human programs should have a destination. It shouldn't just be conducted to send humans up in space to do nothing. And it's not for science because science could be much done much more economically without the humans up there. Uh, and so the if you're going to do a human spaceflight program, a destination of exploration clearly is in mind. And you got to walk before you can run, which means you got to go to the moon before you can go anywhere. So the Chinese sending humans to the moon is more or less an obvious goal. The uh, uh, timetable on it is, uh, is I think, just basically will be determined as they can do it. They're not in a space race, in, as were the United States and the Soviet Union in the 60s. So they, didn't, they don't need a Kennedy-like statement, which is we shall do it before the end of the decade. Come and see if you can match us Russians. We, they don't need that statement. If uh, suddenly Japan gets interested in doing uh, a human spaceflight program or India, uh, maybe that'll change. But I don't see that happening. I, I don't. I, I think that uh, basically the Chinese will, and they are a developing country. They're not a. They're in many ways a rich country, but at the same time they're a developing country, and they're not going to, I think, get involved in a overspending of resources on this. 
But if this is true, I wonder if they aren't actually, from a political sense, in a better place than we were in the 60s when it was obviously mostly being driven by the race with the Soviets. If they have this long-term commitment, but it's for other reasons, other than uh, we just want to show that we're, we're major players on the, uh, on the global stage, or is that a big part of well, it? Well, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, yeah. I, I don't really think there's a better reason, uh, mm-hmm. frankly. Uh, why else do you send humans to the moon? It's basically to show that you are a major player in the technology and you're going to be part of the vanguard of advancing uh, t- uh, technology on Earth uh, for the future. And so I think in that sense, that is their major reason Mm. for doing it. Uh, But if they continue to make steady progress between the automated missions and their ever-increasing capability of uh, astronauts in orbit, uh, they will certainly be that player. But did you see any sense or get any sense of an entrepreneurial spirit, which has been noted elsewhere in Chinese society? I mean, that they need to do this because there's going to be... Money, yen, uh, yuan to make out there. <laughs> the, uh, I never, I never, I haven't met anybody who thinks they're going to make money on the moon. But then again, I don't travel in the, in the, in those kinds of circles. I've so talked to I'm a couple. I'm not sure of them. about the uh, Chinese uh, entrepreneurs uh, uh, it, it being motivated in in that light. There is definitely intra- commercial interest, high commercial interest in China in using that space program to make money. They have a rocket they would like to sell to many customers. They are trying to develop a uh, space industry. For the most part now, they don't, you know, you, you would not go to China to have your satellite built. There were other places in U.S. and Russia and Europe that, and Japan where you would, uh, you would go if you really want to commercially get a satellite built. But on the other hand, they are trying to develop that capability and they do see the benefit of commercial space in that regard. Mm. They may even want to develop a commercial use for a space station. Uh, and there's talk in China now about uh, maybe they will have a Soyuz type space station or a mere type space station in their future which they could use commercially um, if there are if there is any uh, commercial uses uh, uh, to be made like that so I think all of that's possible uh, I don't see the moon program being driven by any of that uh, commercial talk we just have a minute or two left talk about your impressions of not only these young people at this academy and and you know how enthusiastic their enthusiasm, how driven they are, but of Chinese society. I, mean, I know you spent a, a good deal of your uh, off hours walking around the streets yeah. of Beijing. Well, it's uh, it's kind of funny. You have to be careful now. Uh, you, I get a look of it. It's like getting a look of America by going to New York and get, by going to Manhattan, <laughs> uh, which I love to do, and it's vital and it's exciting and everything like that. But that's not. I can't say that's the typical American, right? And the same thing is true in China, of course. Beijing is a very vital, active city. Uh, it's a little too polluted, I must say. I, uh, mm. they, they've got to work on uh, – they, they have a smog uh, issue there uh, in, in a big way. But everywhere – I took a walk one night. Um, in fact, I met Franklin Chang Diaz, uh, our uh, advisor who is one of the NASA astronauts who's flown the shuttle more times than anybody else, or he tied the record for most shuttle flights. He was in China doing some business at the same time, and I left his hotel at about 1130 or back to midnight. I walked back to my hotel. Every street had construction going on it. Mm. At that hour of the night, they are wow. building and building and building, and the Olympics dominates everything. That mm. 2000, I think, there's going to be nothing but vitality and excitement and building and new ideas and new construction going on between now and 2008. 
and whether the economy holds up and whether all the political forces that that are ripping China through China in so many ways, whether it's democracy and human rights and and, uh, the really big issues of society, how that all plays out, it'll hold together, I think, to 2008. But what's its impact going to be in those areas? That's really exciting to think about. It's like being uh, witnessing uh, those changes in the Soviet Union to Russia, and who knows which way it'll go. But it's really, uh, I'm very gratified for the opportunity to be part of it now. And I uh, guess we'll be keeping our eye on China, the Middle Kingdom, uh, and its uh, push out into space to uh, join uh, the other nations that uh, have a major presence there. Lou, we're out of time. Uh, thanks very much for coming back to uh, Planetary Radio. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, I want to talk about this some more and, and, and put it in the context of all international lunar missions, which there's a lot of. So let's, uh, let's plan another one, Matt. We'll do that. Lou Friedman is the Executive Director of the Planetary Society, telling us about his uh, just-completed experience visiting China and uh, talking to the folks who are making that nation a, a spacefaring one. We'll be right back. I'll be right back with Bruce Betts and this week's edition of What's Up after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Cassini's cameras will never return images that resolve 100-meter particles in Saturn's A and B rings. The problem is one of safety. In order to be close to the rings, Cassini's orbital path must take it through the ring plane. Ring plane crossings happen at speeds of many kilometers per second. At such speeds, a collision with even a millimeter-sized particle could fatally damage the spacecraft. So Cassini's orbit crosses the ring plane only in regions where the particles in the ring plane are extremely tiny. This restriction keeps Cassini too far from the A and B rings ever to take images of their individual particles. However, Cassini scientists have other ways to figure out the sizes of ring particles than by photographing them. Radio signals broadcast through the rings to Earth are scattered in different ways by particles of different sizes. Through radio techniques, Cassini scientists have already formed a highly detailed picture of how particle sizes vary within Saturn's rings. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is here for this week's edition of What's Up? He's the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. What do you got for us? How's the night sky? It's pretty. (laughs) Kind of chilly some places in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's pretty. You mean just chillier than usual? I've heard Europe is colder than usual this year, that the, the, the Gulf currents are changing and Europe is going to freeze over. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, or not. <laughs> but there's lots of cool, 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 get it? Cool stuff in yeah. the night sky. Mars still can't stop talking about it. I'm sorry. It's starting to fade, but it's uh, orangish and up there in the evening sky after sunset now. And you can see Venus still looking bright just after sunset in the west. Venus is riveting. It is riveting. My eyes go straight to it. It is so bright now. It is hard not to. It is so much brighter than everything else. Yeah. 
you know, once the sun goes down. Saturn coming up later, not not competing in the brightness realm, but if you've got that small telescope and can look up, or a big one, and see some rings, it's always <laughs> yeah, very, really. very cool coming uh, up. You guys at, at the Keck? Okay, listen up. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, Saturn, it's cool, man. Take a look at it in the evening. Matt and Bruce said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sitting around, looking at their computer screens, listening to Planetary Radio, going, hey, what do we look at tonight? That's how it works. Anyway, it is, uh, it's coming up in the, the east, uh, around, uh, nine or so in the evening, east, northeast. We'll be up high later in the evening. Jupiter in the pre-dawn sky looking very, very Right in the uh, the east southeast, but very low, and those geminid meteor showers challenged by the full moon, but peaking on the 14th of December. On to this week in space history: 10th anniversary of Galileo Jupiter orbit insertion. Hmm. So when the Galileo spacecraft entered orbit at Jupiter, becoming our first first spacecraft ever to orbit a giant planet, also deploying a probe to uh, go into the Jovian atmosphere. The whole mission incredibly successful. Uh, learned all sorts of good stuff. On to Random Space Card! You know, Matt, you've inspired me. You you enjoyed those holes, like, size and scale things so much. I do, I'm, I'm yeah. Trying to introduce the bread box more. type metaphors. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, I got no bread box for you. This okay. is just a comparison of scales. That isn't exactly a bread box. No, it's the scale of the Earth-Moon system. Oh, okay. So, you know, 250,000 miles for those playing in miles. Yeah, good candidate. Did you ever think about the fact that it would really easily fit within the diameter of the sun? No. The entire Earth-Moon system uh, takes up only about a, a third to a quarter of the dia- diameter of the sun. That sun is big. Did I mention? Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what gets me is that, you know, there are those stars that I guess are as much bigger than our sun as our sun is bigger than our little place, our little It's planet. true. Yeah. The sun is is only an average kind of star in pretty much all qualities. No. I yeah, Earth-Moon system, 384,000 kilometers, and the diameter of the sun, 1.4 million wow. kilometers. You know, I never thought of it in those terms. That's great. That's what I'm here for, Matt. So we're lucky, very lucky, that the Earth is not at the center of the sun. We are. It turns out. <laughs> Finally, we have a reason to be thankful for that. Let's move on to the trivia contest. We asked you, how many NASA flight directors have there been for human spaceflight missions in the entire history of the NASA human spaceflight program? Christopher so- Kraft, my all-time favorite uh- uh, mission guy. Oh, well, that's a different director, contest. Sorry. You know, yeah. pick your favorite flight director. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, we, we got a variety of answers. Uh, but most people had it right. Uh, William Kovacs had it right. William Kovacs, who lives in Mays Landing, New Jersey. I think he's a previous winner. And he said there have been 58 flight directors, men and women. I didn't, uh, didn't even stop to think that a few of them have been women. Yes, indeed he do. Hmm. And uh, I just find it interesting, far fewer than the number of astronauts that we've had that's measured in, you know, a few, not many, hundred. Uh, so, yeah, interesting. Well, congratulations. Yeah, William, you're going to get that uh, extra large uh, planetary radio T-shirt. We're going to put it in the mail to you soon. Now I hear you're getting mail from your old uh, your old school teachers. Oh, yeah, there's a guy with the same name as one of my old school teachers, which I won't mention, but I'd love to hear if it's my sixth-grade teacher from Eshelman Elementary. So if you're out there, you know who you are, <laughs> Mr. Blank. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next contest so you can get more great mail from your... Past teachers. <laughs> what is the world's 
lightest solid, least dense solid. Huh. Turns out it has quite the planetary application, as well as other applications, but has been used in various spacecraft applications. What is the world's least dense solid? Send that to us via planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to send us your entry and uh, and win. My mind is racing because the obvious answer is probably not the right answer, and I'm not going to go any further because it would give hints, but the key word being solid. Fantastic. Solid, yes. Well, I don't know. Those who follow planetary, the obvious answer is the right answer. Huh. Those who don't, which, of course, are the people not listening to this show, I think this would be completely not obvious. Well, the deadline this time around is the 12th of December, 2 p.m., Monday, Pacific Time. And if you get it in by then, we'll make sure that your entry is among those from which we pick the winner of the next Planetary Radio T-shirt. That is if you have the correct answer. Hey, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about who was isosceles. <laughs> Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He's here every week for What's Up. I'm sorry, was that too angular for you, Matt? No, it was too obtuse. Oh, that's an acute statement. We'll be back next week with a variety of topics, including some recent remarks by NASA Administrator Michael Griffin and the outlook for space tourism. Tune in before you buy a ticket. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, where we welcome a new member to our radio family, WEFT 90.1 FM Community Radio for East Central Illinois. And you're welcome to write to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.